Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat, the classic story from Edna Ferber that inspired one of the greatest American musicals. This is the eighth book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads, featuring the acclaimed Canadian actress, artist, television, and radio host, Marilyn Lightstone. You can find the entire series online at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads Edna Ferber's Showboat. Chapter 4 Many quarrels had marked their married life, but this one assumed serious proportions. It was a truly sinister note in the pageant of mismating that passed constantly before Magnolia's uncomprehending eyes in childhood. Parthenia had opposed him often, and certainly always when a new venture or plan held something of the element of unconventionality. But now the Puritan in her ran rampant. He would disgrace her before the community. He was ruining the life of his child. She would return to her native New England. He would not see Magnolia again. He had explained to her, rather it had come out piecemeal, that his new project would necessitate his absence from home for months at a time. He would be away, surely, from April until November. If Parthy and the child would live with him on the showboat part of that time, summers, easy life, lots to see, learn the country. The storm broke, raged, beat about his head, battered his diminutive frame. He clutched his whiskers and hung on for dear life. In the end, he won. All that Parthy ever had in her life of color, of romance, of change, he brought her. But for him, she would still be plowing through the drifts or mud of the New England road on her way to and from the frigid little schoolhouse. But for him, she would still be living her barren spinster life with her salty old father in the grim coast town whence she had come. She was to trail through the vine-hung bayous of Louisiana, float down the generous rivers of the Carolinas, of Tennessee, of Mississippi, with the silver-green weeping willows misting the water's edge. She was to hear the mellow, plaintive voices of the black folk singing on the levees and in cabin doorways as the boat swept by. She would taste exotic fruits, see stirring sights, meet the fantastic figures that passed up and down the rivers like shadows drifting in and out of a weird dream. Yet always she was to resent loveliness, fight the influence of each new experience, combat the lure of each new face. Tight-lipped, belligerent, she met beauty and adventure and defied them to work a change in her. For three days, then, following Andy's stupendous announcement, Parthenia threatened to leave him, though certainly in an age that looked upon the marriage tie as well-nigh indissoluble by any agent other than death, she could not have meant it, straight-laced as she was. For another three days, she refused to speak to him, conveying her communications to him through a third person, who was, perforce, Magnolia, Tell your father thus and so. 
this in his very presence. Ask your father, this and that. Experience had taught Magnolia not to be bewildered by these tactics. She was even amused, as at a game. But finally, the game wearied her. Or perhaps, child though she was, an instinctive sympathy between her and her father made her aware of the pain twisting the face of the man. Suddenly, she stamped her foot, issued her edict. I won't tell him another single word for you. It's silly. I thought it was kind of fun, but it isn't. It's silly for a great big grown-up person like you that's a million years old. Andy was absent from home all day long and often late into the night. The cotton blossom was being overhauled from keel to pilot house. She was lying just below the landing. Painters and carpenters were making her ship shape. Andy trotted up and down the town and the riverbank, talking, gesticulating, capering excitedly. There were numberless supplies to be ordered, a troop to be assembled. He was never without a slip of paper on which he figured constantly. His pockets and the lining of his cap bristled with these paper scraps. One week following their quarrel, Parthy Anne began to evidence interest in these negotiations. She demanded details. How much had he paid for that old mass of kindling wood? Meaning, of course, the cotton blossom. How many would its theater seat? What did the troop number? What was their route? How many deckhands? One cook or two? Interspersed with these questions were grumblings and dire predictions about money thrown away, poverty in old age, the advisability of a keeper being appointed for people whose minds had palpably given way. Still, her curiosity was obviously intense. "'Tell you what!' suggested Andy, with what he fancied to be infinite craft. Get your hat on and come on down and take a look at her. Never, said Parthenia, and untied her kitchen apron. Well, then, let Magnolia go down and see her. She likes boats, don't you, Nola? Same's her pa. Ha! Likely I'd let her go, sniffed Parthy. Andy tried another tack. Don't you want to come and see where your pa's going to live all the months and months he'll be away from you and ma? At which Magnolia, with splendid dramatic sense, began to cry wildly and inconsolably. Parthy remained grim. Yet she must have been immediately disturbed, for Magnolia wept so seldom as to be considered a queer child on this count, among many others. Oh, hush your noise, commanded Parthy. Great sobs racked Magnolia. Andy crudely followed up his advantage. I guess you'll forget how your papa looks time he gets back. Magnolia, perfectly aware of the implausibility of any such prediction, now hurled herself at her father, wrapped her arms about him and howled, jerking back her head, beating a tattoo with her heels, interspersing the howls with piteous supplications not to be left behind. She wanted to see the showboat, and with the delightful memory of the Creole Bell trip fresh in her mind, she wanted to travel on the cotton blossom as she had never wanted anything in her life. Her eyes were staring and distended, her fingers clutched, her body writhed, her moans were heartbreaking. 
She gave a magnificent performance. Andy tried to comfort her. The howls increased. Parthy tried stern measures. Hysteria. The two united then, and alarm brought pleadings and pleadings promises, and finally the three sat intertwined. Andy's arm about Magnolia and Parthenia. Parthenia's arm embracing Andy and Magnolia. Magnolia clinging to both. Come and get your hair combed. Mom will change your dress. Now stop that crying. Magnolia had been shaken by a final series of racking sobs, real enough now that the mechanics had been started. Her lower lip quivered at intervals as the wet comb chased the strands of straight black hair around Mrs. Hawk's expert forefinger. When finally she appeared in starched muslin petticoats and second-best plaid serge, there followed behind her Parthy Anne, herself bonneted and cloaked for the street. The thing was done. The wife of a showman. The Puritan in her shivered, but her curiosity was triumphant even over this. They marched down Oak Street to the river landing, the child skipping and capering in her excitement. There was, too, something of elation in Andy's walk. If it had not been for the grim figure at his side and the restraining hand on his arm, it is not unlikely that the two, father and child, would have skipped and capered together down to the water's edge. Mrs. Hawk's tread and mien were those of a matronly Christian martyr on her way to the lions. As they went, the parents talked of unimportant things to which Magnolia properly paid no heed, having had her way. "'Gone most of the time. It wouldn't hurt her any, I tell you. Learn more in a week than she would in a year out of books. Oh, but they ain't, I tell you, decent folks, as you'd ever want to see. Married couples, most of them. What do you think I'm running? A body boat? Oh, language be damned. Now, Parthy, you've got this far. Don't start all over again. There, there she is. (sighs) Oh, ain't she pretty? Oh, look, Magnolia, that's where you're going to live. Oh, all right, all right, I was just talking. The cotton blossom lay moored to great stobs. Long and wide and plump and comfortable, she looked, like a rambling house that had taken perversely to the nautical life and now lay at ease on the river's broad breast. She had had two coats of white paint with green trimmings, and not the least of these green trimmings comprised letters a foot high that smote Parthy's anguished eye, causing her to groan, and Magnolia's delighted gaze, causing her to squeal. There it was, in all the finality of painter's print. Captain Andy Hawk's Cotton Blossom Floating Palace Theatre. Parthy gathered her dolmen more tightly about her, as though smitten by a chill. The clay banks of the levee were strewn with cinders and ashes for a foothold. The steep sides of a river bank, down which they would scramble and up which they would clamber, were to be the home path for these three in the years to come. An awninged upper deck like a cosy veranda, gave the great flatboat a curiously homelike look. 
On the main deck, too, the gangplank ended in a forward deck which was like a comfortable front porch. Pillars adorned with scrollwork supported this, and there, its mouth open in a half-oval of welcome, was the ticket window, through which could be seen the little box office with its desk and chair and its wall rack for tickets. There actually were tickets stuck in this, purple and red and blue. Parthy shut her eyes as at a leprous sight. A wide doorway led into the entrance hall. There again, double doors opened to reveal a stairway. Balcony stairs, Andy explained, and upper boxes. Seat hundred and fifty to two hundred easy. Parthy shuddered. An aisle to the right, an aisle to the left of this stairway, and there was the auditorium of the theatre itself, with its rows of seats and its orchestra pit, its stage, its boxes, its painted curtain raised part way so that you saw only the lower half of the Venetian water scene it depicted, the legs of gondoliers in wooden attitudes, faded blue lagoon, palace steps. Magnolia knew a pang of disappointment. True, the boxes bore shiny brass railings and boasted red plush upholstered seats. But I, but I thought it would be all light and glittery, like a fairy tale, she protested. At night, Andy assured her. He had her warm, wriggling little fingers in his. At night. That's when it's like a fairy tale, when the lamps are lighted and all the people in the band playing. Where's the kitchen? demanded Mrs. Hawkes. Andy leapt nimbly down into the orchestra pit, stooped, opened a little door under the stage, and beckoned. Ponderously, Parthy followed. Magnolia scampered after. Dining room and cook's galley were under the stage. Great crossbeams hung so low that even Andy was forced to stoop a little to avoid battering his head against them. Magnolia could touch them quite easily with her fingertips. In time, it came to seem quite natural to see the company and crew of the Cotton Blossom entering the dining room at mealtime, humbly bent, as though in a preliminary attitude of grace before meat. There were two long tables, each accommodating perhaps ten, and at the head of the room, a smaller table for six. This is our table, Andy announced boldly as he indicated the third. Parthy snorted, but it seemed to the sensitive Andy that in this snort there was just a shade less resentment than there might have been. Between dining room and kitchen, an opening the size of a window frame had been cut in the wall, and the base of this was a broad shelf for convenience in conveying hot dishes from stove to table. As the three passed from dining room to kitchen, Andy tossed over his shoulder further information for the possible approval of the bristling party. Joe and Queenie, she cooks and he waits and washes up and one thing and another. They promised to be back April 1st. Oh, sure. Been with the cotton blossom these two have ten years and more. Painter's been cluttering up here and what not. And will you look at the way the kitchen looks, spite of them? <laughs> Slicks a whistle. Oh, look at that stove. Crafty Andy. Parthenia and Hawks looked at the stove. 
and what a stove it was. Broad-bosomed, ample, vast, like a huge, fertile black mammal, whose breast would suckle numberless, eager, sprawling, bubbling pots and pans. It shone richly. Gazing upon this generous expanse, you felt that from its source could emerge nothing that was not savory, nourishing, satisfying. Above it, and around the walls, on hooks, hung rows of pans and kettles of every size and shape, all neatly suspended by their pigtails. Here was the wherewithal for boundless cooking. You pictured whole hams sizzling, fowls neatly trussed in rows, platoons of brown loaves, hampers of green vegetables, vast plateaus of pies. Crockery, thick, white, Course was piled plate on plate, platter on platter, behind the neat doors of the pantry. A supplementary and redundant kerosene stove stood obligingly in the corner. Little hot snack at night after the show, Andy explained. Coffee or an egg, maybe, and no lighting the big wood burner. There crept slowly, slowly over Parthy's face a look of speculation and this in turn was replaced by an expression that was, paradoxically, at once eager and dreamy. As though aware of this, she tried with words to belie her look. Oh, all this cooking for a crowd. Take a mint of money, that's what it will. Make a mint, Andy retorted blithely. A black cat, sleek, lithe, at ease, paced slowly across the floor stood a moment surveying the two with wary yellow eyes, then sidled towards Parthy and rubbed his arch back against her skirts. Moser, said Andy. Oh, scat, cried Parthy. But her tone was half-hearted, and she did not move away. In her eyes gleamed the unholy light of the housewife who beholds for the first time the domain of her dreams. Joe and Queenie to boss. Wholesale marketing. Do this, do that. Perhaps Andy, in his zeal, had even overdone the thing a little. Suddenly, oh, where's that child? Where's... Oh, my goodness, Hawks! visions of Magnolia having fallen into the river. She was later always to have visions of Magnolia having fallen into rivers, so that Magnolia sometimes fell into them out of sheer perversity, as other children, cautioned to remain in the yard, willfully ran away from home. Andy darted out of the kitchen, through the little rabbit-hatch door. Mrs. Hawks gathered up her voluminous skirts and flew after, scrambled across the orchestra pit, turned at the sound of a voice, Magnolia's, and yet not Magnolia's, coming from that portion of the stage exposed below the half-raised curtain, in tones at once throaty, mincing, and falsely elegant, that arrogant voice which is childhood's unconscious imitation of pretense in its elders, Magnolia was reciting nothing in particular, and bringing great gusto to the rendition. The words were palpably made up as she went along. Oh, do you really think so? My little girl is very naughty. Oh, we are rich. Oh, dear me, yes. Ice cream every day for breakfast, dinner, and supper. 
She wore her mother's dolman, which that lady had unclasped and left hanging over one of the brass railings of a box. From somewhere she had rummaged a bonnet whose jet aigret quivered with the earnestness of its wearer's artistic effort. The dolman trailed in the dust of the floor. Magnolia's right hand was held in a graceful position, the little finger elegantly crooked. Oh, Maggie Hawks, will you come down out of there this instant? Parthy whirled on Andy. There, that's what it comes to. Minute she sets foot in this sink of iniquity. Play acting. Andy clawed his whiskers, chuckling. He stepped to the proscenium and held out his arms for the child, and she stood looking down at him, flushed, smiling, radiant. You're about as good as your pa was, Nola, <laughs> and that's no compliment. He swung her to the floor, a whirl of dolman, short starch skirt, and bonnet askew. Then, as Parthy snatched the dolman from her and glared at the bonnet, he saw that he must create a gain of favorable impression, contrive a new diversion, or his recent gain was lost. A born showman, Andy. Where'd you get that bonnet, Magnolia? In there. She pointed to one of a row of doors facing them at the rear of the stage. In one of those little bedrooms. C cabins. What are they, Papa? Dressing rooms, Nola. And bedrooms, too. Want to see them, Parthy? He opened a little door leading from the right-hand box to the stage crossed the stage, followed by the reluctant Parthenia, threw open one of the doors at the back. There was revealed a tiny cabin holding a single bed, a diminutive dresser, and washstand. Handy rows of shelves were fastened to the wall above the bed. Dimity curtains hung at the window. The window itself framed a view of river and shore. A crudely colored calendar hung on the wall, and some photographs and newspaper clippings, time yellowed. There was about the little chamber a coziness, a snugness, and paradoxically enough, a sense of space. That was the open window, doubtless, with its vista of water and sky, giving the effect of freedom. Dressing rooms during the performance, Andy explained. "'and bedrooms the rest of the time. "'That's the way we work it.' "'Mrs. Hawkes, with a single glance, "'encompassed the tiny room and rejected it. "'Expect me to live in a cubbyhole like that?' "'It was, unconsciously, her first admission. "'Magnolia, behind her mother's skirts, "'was peering wide-eyed into the room. "'Why, I love it. "'Why, I'd love to live in it.' "'Oh, look, there's a little bed and a dresser and a—' "'Andy interrupted hastily. "'Course, I don't expect you to live in a cubbyhole, Parthy. "'No, nor the child, neither. "'Just you step along with me. "'Now don't say anything, and stop your grumbling till you see. "'Put that bonnet back, Nola, where you got it. "'That's wardrobe. "'Which room do you get it out of?' Across the stage, then, up the aisle to the stairway that led to the balcony, Andy leading, Mrs. Hawks following funereally, Magnolia playing a zigzag game between the rows of seats, yet managing mysteriously to arrive at the foot of the stairs just as they did. 
The balcony reached, Magnolia had to be rescued from the death that, in Mrs. Hawke's opinion, inevitably would result from her leaning over the railing to gaze enthralled on the auditorium and stage below. Hawks, will you look at that child? I declare if I ever get her off this boat alive, I'll never set foot on it again. But her tone somehow lacked conviction. And when she beheld those two upper bedrooms forward, leading off the balcony, those two square, roomy bedrooms, as large, actually, as her bedroom in the cottage, she was lost. The kitchen had scored, but the bedrooms won. They were connected by a little washroom. Each had two windows. Each held bed, dresser, rocker, stove. Bedraggled dimity curtains hung at the windows. Matting covered the floors. Parthy did an astonishing, though characteristic, thing. She walked to the dresser, passed a practice forefinger over its surface, examined the finger critically, and uttered that universal tongue-and-tooth sound indicating disapproval. An inch thick, she then said. A sight of cleaning this boat will take, I can tell you. Not a curtain in the place, but'll have to come down and washed and starched and ironed. Instinct, or a superhuman wisdom, cautioned Andy to say nothing. From the next room came a shout of joy. Is this my room? It's got a chair that rocks, and a stove with a reservoir, and I can I can see my whole self in the looking glass. It's so big. Oh, is this my room? Is it, Mama? Parthy passed into the next room. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Andy followed after, almost a tiptoe, afraid to break the spell with a sudden sound. But, but is it? I want to know. Oh, Papa, make her tell me. Oh, look. Oh, look, the window here is a little door. It's a door, and I can go right out on the upstairs porch. And there's the whole river. I should say as much, and a fine way to fall and drown without anybody being the wiser. But the child was beside herself with excitement and suspense. She could endure it no longer, flew to her stern parent, and actually shook that adamantine figure in its dolman and bonnet. Oh, is it? Is it? Oh, is it? We'll see. A look, then, of almost comic despair flashed between father and child. A curiously adult look for one of Magnolia's years. It said, What a woman this is. Can we stand it? I can, only if you can. Andy tried suggestion. Could paint this furniture any color, Nola says. Blue, put in Magnolia promptly. And new curtains, maybe, with ribbons to match. He had, among other unexpected traits, a keen eye for color and line, a love for fabrics. Arthy said nothing. Her lips were compressed. The look that passed between Andy and Magnolia now was pure despair, with no humor to relieve it. So they went disconsolately out of the door, crossed the balcony, clumped down the stairs, like mutes at a funeral. At the foot of the stairs they heard voices from without, women's voices, high and clear, and laughter. The sounds came from the little porch-like deck forward, 
Parthy swooped through the door, had scarcely time to gaze upon two sprightly females in gay plumage, before both fell upon her lawful husband, Captain Andy Hawks, and embraced him. And the young pretty one kissed him on his left-hand mutton-chop whisker, and the older plain one kissed him on the right-hand mutton-chop whisker, and, "'Oh, dear Captain Hawks,' they cried, "'aren't you surprised to see us? And happy!' Do say you're happy. We drove over from Cairo specially to see you in the cotton blossom. Doc's with us. Andy flung an obliging arm about the waist of each and gave each armful a little squeeze. Happy ain't the word. And indeed, it scarcely seemed to cover the situation. For there stood Parthy, viewing the three entwined, and as she stood, she seemed to grow visibly taller, broader, more ominous, like a menacing cloud. Andy's expression was a protean thing in which bravado and apprehension battled. Magnolia had recognized them at once as the pretty young woman in the rose-trimmed hat and the dark woman who had told her not to smile too often that day when in company with the sloppy young man they had passed the hawk's house, laughing and chatting and spitting cherry stones idly and comfortably into the dust of the village street. So she now took a step forward from behind her mother's voluminous skirts and made a little tentative gesture with one hand towards the older woman. And that lively female at once said, Why, bless me! Look, Elliot's the little girl. Ellie looked. What little girl? The little girl with a smile. And at that, Quite without premeditation, and to her own surprise, Magnolia ran to her and put her hand in hers and looked up into her strange, ravaged face and smiled. There, exclaimed the woman, exactly as she had done that first time. Maggie Hawks, came the voice, and, oh my God, exclaimed the one called Ellie, it's the, sent something dangerous in the air, laughed, and stopped short. Andy extricated himself from his physical entanglements and attempted to do likewise with the social snarl that now held them all. Meet my wife, Mrs. Hawks. Parthy, this is Julie Dozier, female half of our general business team and one of the finest actresses on the river besides being as nice a little lady as you'd meet in a month of Sundays. And this here little beauty is L.A. Chipley. Lenore Laverne on the bills. Our ingenue lead and a favorite from Duluth to New Orleans. Where's Doc? At which, with true dramatic instinct, Doc appeared, scrambling down the cinder path toward the boat, leapt across the gangplank, poised on one toe, spread his arms and caroled, Trotta! A hard-visaged man of about fifty-five, yet with kindness, too, written there, the deep, furrowed, sad-eyed, ageless face of the circus shillaber and showman. Girls say you drove over. Must be flush with your spondulix, Doc. Parthy, meet Doc. He's got another name, I guess, but nobody's ever used it. <laughs> Doc's enough for anybody on the river. Doc goes ahead of the show and bills us and does the dirty work, don't you, Doc? That's about the size of it agreed Doc, and sped sadly and accurately a comet of brown juice from his lips over the boat's side into the river. Pleased to make your acquaintance, 
Andy indicated Magnolia. Here's my girl Magnolia you've heard me talk about. Well, well, look at them eyes. They oughtn't to go bad in the show business, little later. A sound from Parthy, who until now had stood a graven image, a portent. Doc turned to her, soft-spoken, courteous. Fixin' to take a little ride with us for good luck, I hope, ma'am. Our first trip out with Cap here. Mrs. Hoggs glanced then at the arresting face of Julie Dozier, female half of our general business team and one of the finest actresses on the river. Mrs. Hoggs looked at Ellie Chipley, Lenore Laverne on the bills, the little beauty and favorite from Duluth to New Orleans. She breathed deep. Yes, I am. And with those three monosyllables, Parthenia and Hawks renounce the ties of land, of conventionality, forsook the staid orderliness of the little white-painted cottage at Thebes, shut her ears to the scandalized gossip of her sedate neighbors, yield grimly to the urge of the river, and became at last its unwilling mistress. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the eighth book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast series. Other readings include Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.